into the book of John. This is John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. These are the words of Jesus. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So, they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Heavenly Father, by your spirit, through your word today, would you remind us of the great gift of our union with you? And would you teach us to abide with you? Would you help us to be conscious of your very real presence that is here with us today? Would you help us to commune with you by your spirit here in this time and place, here in this moment where heaven and earth overlap because of your very presence and by your spirit would you teach us to obey would you empower us to obey that we might grow in Christ's likeness and so today father would you grant me a grace would you fill um, these words with light and heat would your word be heard today would your voice be heard because that's what we need we need to hear not the voice of a man but the voice of our living God so to you, be the glory today. Lead us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Strange the things that can usher in joy. Nightmares, for instance. Nightmares have a strange way of ushering joy into your day. Just a week ago or so, I had this chilling dream, one of those nightmares that has the very texture of reality to it. You know, not, not an overly bizarre dream like it came out of the mind of Tim Burton, you know. Not, not one of those absurdist dreams that signals that you're walking in dream territory. Not one of those surrealist dreams where the landscape looks like it's painted by, by Salvador Dali. But the kind that disturbingly resembles reality, right? One that has a close and terrible coherence to your everyday 
life. But it's off. It's off just enough in some harrowing way to be truly horrifying. Now, it's not so much the substance of the dream that I'm concerned with here this morning, but rather the paradoxical effect of the dream. It's a strange outcome, and, and I imagine it's something you know full well. It's the odd experience. Uh, it's the kind of moment when, when you, you wake up and reflexively you go, thank you, Jesus, right? It's just this reflex that comes springing from your lips as you start and, and, and sputter out of, out of your dream world into the, the rising light of morning. Right? It's that effect of total joy that courses through you when you realize that you were in a labyrinth of a dream and that you've woken up to the truth. All is fine and the birds are singing and a glorious light streaming through your window. Right? It's that strange paradox of the nightmare itself ushering in joy. It's the feeling of getting your family back from the dead after losing them in the nightmare. It's the sensation of that terrible thing that happened in the dreamscape now being reversed, unhappening, so to speak, as you wake up to the resurrection light of dawn. It's that experience of feeling intense joy and surging gratitude, not in spite of the evils of the night that tore at you, but because of those things. In other words, because of the darkness of the nightmare, the morning light has a brighter brilliance to it, a new splendor. A gratitude is now born in you for the day because the night was so dark. It's that strange experience that the sorrow itself has somehow brought about new joy. Now in this kind of experience, there is an echo of a biblical truth. There is an echo of a gospel glory in here. There's something of a pattern for us to understand and incorporate into how we inhabit this, this world. And our passage in John 16 speaks of it today. Now, John 16, verses 16 through 24, which we just read, it's a bit of a puzzling passage. Right? There's this, this Jesus riddle that's happening in it. And, and even though it's a passage loaded with uh, gravity in, in its content, there's something of a slight smile to the dialogue. There's a little bit of Abbott and Costello who's on first in here, isn't there? Right? I mean, did you pick up on it? In this quizzical conversation, there's this phrase. It all centers around this phrase, a little while. In fact, if you go through and, and, and count them, that's in there seven times. I don't think that's unintentional. A little while this, Jesus says, and a little while this. A little while this, the disciples say, and then a little while this? Yeah, a little while this, and a little while this. A little while what? And a little while why? You know, I can tell you are having a hard time understanding a little while this and a little while this. Are you wondering? Yes, we're wondering, Jesus. What are you talking about? What Jesus is teaching them was extraordinarily important for the moment in which they were living. And what Jesus is teaching them and us is extraordinarily important for the moment that we are living in. This teaching 
though aimed at a specific moment in history during the Passion Week, the week of of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It's timeless, and it's timely for anyone, anywhere who is acquainted with tears, who is familiar with grief. That's 100% of us. For the arrows of sorrow and the ache of joy pierce every human heart. They always have and they will until all things are made right. And so today what I pray that we see in our passage is this, that joy doesn't simply come after sorrow. Joy doesn't simply come after sorrow. Joy comes through sorrow, comes by way of sorrow. And this truth, if we can get it into the way we see and into the way we feel and experience the world, will change our relationship with sorrow, sorrow that has come and sorrow that most definitely will come. We need a Christ-like relationship with sorrow. So with that said, into the story of our passage today. So let's go to the scene. It's Holy Thursday. It's Monday Thursday. It's the evening of the Last Supper. Jesus has been on his knees washing the dirty feet of his disciples. And Jesus has been reclining, sitting with his disciples, eating dinner, laughing, teaching, praying. But now they're on the move. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And with each step along those Jerusalem stones, with each step along those Jerusalem streets, Jesus and his apprentices are getting closer and closer and closer to a cosmic nightmare. Because Jesus will be violently seized by the powers that be. He will be arrested by the strange torchlight in Gethsemane. Then he will be tried in a kangaroo court, put on an unjust trial, and the next day he will be hammered to the rough wood of a Roman cross. And so now, as they take step by step into the darkness that is Good Friday, Jesus teaches his apprentices a master class, an apprenticeship to him, an apprenticeship that includes a dark Friday, an apprenticeship that includes a silent and sorrowful Saturday, an apprenticeship that also includes a bright and healing Sunday. And it is with our apprenticeship. Our apprenticeship to Jesus will include dark Fridays. It will include silent and sorrowful Saturdays. And it includes bright, brilliant, and healing Sundays, so to speak. Now, at this point in the journey, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come in the day ahead. So, verses 16 through 18. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will, because I'm going to the Father. What is this? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Those are super encouraging words. Have you ever read the words of Jesus? And you're like, I do not know what he is talking about at all. They were with him. They said the words. It's okay for us to admit that we say the words. 
So Jesus is a little bit cryptic, and his apprentices are a whole lot confused, and we should be kind to them, because they're in the middle of the story, and we have the benefit of, of retrospect, but, you know, we're still, still confused. So Jesus, being the good teacher, goes on to explain, verse 19 through 20, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly. By the way, anytime you hear Jesus say truly, truly, this is him underlining, this is him putting in bold, this is him putting in italics, putting exclamation marks after what he's about to say. Listen, this is super important. You've got to get this in you. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. See, he says to them, look, I, I know it's confusing to you now. I know it doesn't quite make sense yet, but you need to know something. Sorrow is coming, and it's coming for you. But this sorrow is for a little while. And the sorrow is for a little while because in a little while, that sorrow will turn to joy. It will turn to joy. And see, look, Jesus is not just managing their expectations because he is a good leader. He is loving them by putting a stabilizing hope in the holes of their soul so the approaching storm doesn't capsize them in the waves of grief and sadness because he knows the storm that's coming their way. A little while, they will be in darkness, Friday and Saturday. And in a little while, there will be the dawning of Sunday. Now, I imagine the disciples still have perplexed looks on their faces um, at this point. So Jesus, being the good teacher he is, he makes the abstract concrete. He gives them an illustration to clarify the principle. He's brilliant. Look at what he does here in verses 21 through 22. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, anguish, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one no one will take your joy from you. This, this is just brilliant. Here is something elemental and visceral, something earthy that can help the heavenly truth. And Jesus was, he was masterful at it. And when I say brilliant, I mean it in every way you can imagine. He was full of light, but man, was he savvy. Like he could teach. He knew how to get into the heart and the soul he knew how to put forth earthly examples of heavenly truths. And that's, that's what he's doing here. The travails of childbirth. Nothing shows in a more universal and powerful and humane way the truth. That agony comes before glory. That tears precede triumph. 
That sorrow is a herald of joy. And I've seen this on a, a number of occasions. I've seen Marla's agony in the, in the throes of, of childbirth. Shouldn't have looked at you, now I'm all emotional. <laughs> and in a moment, the anguish gives way to the thrill of new life. The thrill of new life. And then, you know, there was one point where there was zero time for an, an epidural, so it was just straight into the terrible shaking pain of contractions, but then that terrible pain gave way to the miracle of smooth infant skin. To the you know, tiny little toes that you just want to touch, right? These tiny little lungs opening and breathing for the first time. To eyes opening to the brightness of the world for the very first time. Joy untold has sprung into the world through the agony. Now this is the wisdom of Psalm 126, verse 5 through 6. Those that sow in tears, they reap in joy. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, burying the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is a pattern. This is a principle this is a deep underlying structure to the universe, to the reality in which we live. And it's strange, but it's there at the macro level to the micro level. And here's the strange thing that Jesus is getting at. Here's the strange thing that is so necessary for all of us to see. It's not simply that there is a joy after sorrow. Because you can have a worldly understanding of that. But it is that joy comes through sorrow. It comes through sorrow. The new life comes roaring into the world by way of the riot of pain. The new child comes by way of the onslaught and crush of contractions, not by circumventing them and holding them off, but going through the sowing of sorrow's tears brings about a harvest of joy. The brutal contractions bring about the beautiful new life. The groaning and ache brings about a new intense gladness. The agony brings about the glory. And this is where I, I want to say that Jesus is introducing us something yet again to what we as his apprentices need to see. And I'm going to call this the master pattern, or the master's pattern. This is a fundamental reality that all Christians should know and cherish and remember as we walk through this life. This is core. This is core. This is key. And it is this. In a world riddled with evil and upside down and backwards in its sin, joy comes through sorrow and glory by way of agony. Heaven enters earth's atmosphere with a burning friction. There is a redemptive suffering that we need to understand. See, there is a quality to the kingdom of heaven that we can call redemptive suffering. And we need a redemptive suffering mindset to navigate this world well. Well. 
And this way of seeing changes our relationship with sorrow. It, it allows for hope to be ushered in to the midst of hurt. See, what Jesus says in our passage is that a little while you won't, you won't see him, and then a little while you will. That, that is, he, he will die. He'll be taken away from those disciples within a few hours. He'll be shrouded from their eyes by death. He will be hidden in the grave. He will be covered over by stone and by earth. But it's precisely, it's precisely his grave that will give way to them seeing him again, truly seeing him. And I don't have the time to go into this, but I want to do this little word nerd thing here for a moment. Because when, it, when he says, you won't see me, and then you will see me, in, in our English language, the words are see and see. But in Greek, the words are different. He says, in a little while, you won't see me, theoreo, um, and that means to observe, like I observe you, I see you with my physical eye, there you are, to observe, theoreo, like well, that's where we get the word theater from, right? we're watching something. But then he says, and then in a little while, you will see me, orao, and this means to perceive with your mind, to not just see, but to really see. So he's saying, for a little bit, you're not going to see me because I'm going to be gone. But when I come back, you are going to see me, the king of the cosmos, the one who entered the grave and rose from the dead, the one who was the creator, the redeemer, and the restorer. You will truly see me as your Lord. When you see me, you're going to see me. All right, don't have too much time, but... Um, I think that's important for us to see. He's not just saying, you'll see me with your eyes and then you'll see me with your eyes. You're going to see me with your heart in accordance with who I truly am. For in a little while there will be sorrow as they grieve the brutal and shame-laden death of their leader, their friend, their Lord, their hope. But that sorrow will, will have a very short lifespan. In a little while they will see their hope rise like the dawn. Jesus alive and well and triumphant. And this, a little while of sorrow, is not just something to hurry up and get past. It's necessary for transformation. It is the way of transformation. This, a little while of tears, is not an obstacle in the way of God's plan. This is the plan. This, a little while of suffering, is not a barrier to salvation. This is the bridge to the promised land. The cross is the way to the crown. The time of sorrow is not an impediment to bringing joy. It is the very vehicle that brings joy. The master's pattern is not just glory after agony. It is glory through agony. It is not just joy after sorrow, but joy through sorrow. And I, I, I admit, like, this is a strange truth, and honestly, it's one I don't like. <laughs> it's an unwelcome truth in our lives because we are bent towards taking the path of least resistance. We curve away from pain physically and psychologically, and there's good reason for that because that's, that those are self-protective measures. 
But we curve away from these things and want to get out of them as soon as possible. We want the glory without the agony. We want the triumph without the travail. We want the glow of morning without the dark night of broken dreams. It's the way we want things. And this is why, though Jesus told his apprentices time and time again, I'm going to have to die and I'm going to have to rise, this is why they, they couldn't see it and why they were surprised by it. They had no category to understand this. They did not have the cross-shaped imagination to see that a victory could come through crushing, that a crowning could come through crucifixion. And their imaginations needed to be reshaped, just like ours do. See, there's a story that that you might know. It, it, It takes place on Easter evening, during twilight on Easter. There are two sorrow-filled souls walking along a sad road home. There are two disciples of Jesus whose whose souls are are leaden, whose feet um, are, are, are heavy because they're traumatized. Their king has been crucified. Rome has has won, and so they're bleeding internally and they're walking home. But but somewhere in this walk, Jesus sidles up alongside them. It's a great scene. I just I wish I could have seen it. Like, hey, what are you talking about? Right? Jesus incognito, they don't see who he truly is. They don't they see him, but they don't see him, right? And they're walking and talking. And then at one point, Jesus says this. This is from Luke chapter 24. Verse 25 to 26. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Christ, the Messiah, the righteous one. Necessary for him to suffer so that he can enter glory? Well, let's look at another one to show the pattern. By the way, I'm going to show some verses, and this isn't just to overload us with verses. It's to help us step back and see a constellation of the truth of what this book is about and what Jesus has done. So let's, let's, let's form this constellation here. Let's look at Luke 24, verse 5 through 7. So this happens during the bright excitement of Easter morning. The, the women, they run, they visit the tomb, and, and then they met these angelic beings. And, and these messengers of heaven said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man... The righteous one, the Messiah, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, must suffer, and on the third day, rise. Glory. Son of man, delivered, crucified, rise. Third day. Let's do one more. Let's do one more. This comes from Matthew 16, verse 21 through 25. So go before Easter Sunday. Go before Good Friday. Go before Monday, Thursday. Go before the Passion Week to Jesus' teaching. Go back to the time where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter, being Peter, steps up and he says, you're the Messiah. And then we get these verses. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, the master's pattern, the master's pattern is always the cross before the crown. And it's the devil's pattern. Is the devil's pattern to offer a crown without a cross. It's his way. He offers glory without agony, knowing that it ultimately will destroy us, knowing that the shortcut will short-circuit our soul's formation and the health of our being. He wants us to grasp at joy without the humbling of ourselves before sorrow and self-denial. That is Satan's way. And yet it's what so many theologies and what so many pulpits popularly teach. That you can circumvent the cross and you can get your crown. And you can avoid all the agony. Just, just grab the glory. You go and get it. You can have a popular ministry without backstage integrity. You can have a massive, big church without the presence of Jesus anywhere near it. And this is what Satan and sin always offers, a crown without a cross. Get the pleasure without the self-denial. Get the sex without the pains and difficulties of marriage, without the intrusion of children. Get the stuff without the hard work. There's always some workaround. There's shortcuts. There's hacks. Take what you want now. Disregard the healthy process you need. See, Paul calls us to see this strange pattern of the master in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the great Christ hymn, as it's called, we hear these words. He encourages, Paul encourages, the Christians to have this mind, this imagination, this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in other words, he's telling us, this is how we should think about reality. This is the mindset that we should have. This is how we should see the world and live in light of it. And it's this. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself down. We go. By taking the form of a servant, down we go again. Being born in the likeness of men, down even further. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient down to the point of death, down, even death on a cross, down to rock bottom. Not only is it death, it is a shame-laden death, because that's what the cross signified, down into sorrow. So our passage goes down. But then you get to the pivot. Verse 9, therefore, because of that downness, now there's an ascension. 
Here's the pivot. God has highly exalted him up and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, up, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, up, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, up and up and away. Down through suffering and death to bring up life, down through agony to bring glory. Now, do you know, um, I have a moment or two to do this, um, two things I want to press into here. You know our church logo. Wow, left turn there, right? Our church logo. What is it? It's a V. If you look in the, the pew in front of you, you'll probably see some literature with that. That logo is the master pattern. It's embedded, it's hidden in there. It's the master's pattern. It's a broken V. And it goes down. And there's a pivot and a swing that changes the the ultimate trajectory. And even though it's a broken road forward, it's a broken road forward. And the right side of the V is higher than the left side of the V because the end glory is greater than the beginning and it's worth all of the mess in the middle. It's not just a V for valley. That is the shape of the good news. That is the shape of the scriptures. That is the master's pattern hidden in that little logo. Might we see life via that pattern? Also, did you know the master's pattern is found throughout all of the story of scripture? There are advanced echoes of Jesus' strange way everywhere. And grant me the next four or five hours and we'll go from Genesis to Revelation. Are you cool with that? Because that so good. Um, Joseph, the beloved child. Technicolor dream coat Joseph. You know who I'm talking about? He goes down into the pit sold by his brothers. He goes down in the story to Egypt. He goes down into slavery, and he goes down further into a slave's prison. But it's because of that descent that he would ascend up into the Pharaoh's throne room. And because of that descent, he would then be there ascended to ply his wisdom to bring bread to the world who's dying of famine, and he would take care of the nations of the world in his glory. The master's pattern. Test case number two, David. King David, anointed. But he goes through the agony. The agony of betrayal. He's hunted. He is the king on the run in the wilderness. And he faces heartache after heartache after heartache. And and in that, his soul is sculpted and prepared to sit on the throne and unite a broken Israel for the glory of God. And because of his descent into the dark places and into the wilderness, he would be able to write the songs of ascent that we would be singing praises to God throughout all eternity. The master's pattern, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, They go down into the fires of the furnace because they're not willing to go down on their knee and bow to some chintzy God. And then they come up out of that furnace, shining. And because of that furnace, the glory of God is known and it is proclaimed throughout the land that Yahweh can be worshipped. And Daniel, come on. I mean, you're there with me, right? He goes down into that tomb covered with bones and, and, and beasts 
And instead of that being his end, that catapults him up into greater glory. And the king who's waiting up there says, truly this Yahweh is God. And Job, we don't have time, but I want to do it. Job, righteous, down, suffering, through all the hell. And then the heavenly scene where he is face to face with God and then he becomes the priest for the nations. Their interceder, their intercessor. Come on, that's Jesus, the master pattern. And this is the shape of Genesis. This is the shape of the, we could go on. Restraint is a good thing. But friends, here's the deal. The master's pattern is not simply history. This is our lived experience. This is our lived experience. The master's pattern is the apprentice's pattern. The shape of the master's story is the shape of the apprentice's story. And as we enter into this truth, and we no longer resist the pattern, hope can fill the hurt that's there. And none of this is to cheapen the pain and grief that we feel. The pain that we feel and experience is real. Grief will, will grieve. Our, our sorrows will, will bring tears. But suddenly we can have the realism of the grief and now the hope of their transformation into something greater. We will face sorrows, trials and tribulations, tears and afflictions. We'll find each and every one of us out. If they haven't found you, they're coming and they they will find you. No one gets through this life unscathed. Every baby that is born is born with smooth skin, but by the time that they go into the ground, there are scars on that flesh. And you have scars and I have scars and we share some scars. Some of us have buried kids together. Some of us have buried siblings together. We've gone through anxieties together and depression together and insecurities together. We have our scars. I'm looking at some of you and I know your scars. You know mine. But there's transformation. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, um, there's three things I want to say that bring great hope. And this will be brief, but I hope it's powerful. We are to pray our sorrows. We are to place our sorrows. And we are to plant, not waste, our sorrows. So the first one is to pray our sorrows. And the best way to do this is to return to our verse that we started with, John 16. Because after Jesus talks about childbirth and this transformation, he brings in prayer. Why? Because he's Jesus and he's brilliant. Verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Kind of confusing. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the same thing that happened with the the word see. There's two different verbs, two different asks here. The first ask, you will ask nothing, means you will not ask for information to understand because you will understand because you've seen the cross and the resurrection and you will know why I had to die. So you're not going to ask about that. But you will ask, different word, you will ask in need for the Father to supply. And Jesus says, and you'll have it because I am your intercessor. I have opened the way to heaven. I have torn the curtain in the temple. Now you are adopted by the Father. You are ushered into the throne room. And whatever you ask, he hears and he is for your good. I have brought union so you can pray. So with our sorrows, we are to pray our 
sorrows, just like Jesus did. And this is so cool. Here, by the way, is one of the ways that sorrow brings about joy. Do you know what sorrow does to you? Man, it strips you down. It makes you raw. And it shows your frailty, your finitude, and your weakness, and your dependence. And suffering presses you into desperation, which will often press you into prayer. It will press you into communion with God. Here's the paradox. Suffering leads into joy because it presses you into communion with God. And communion with God is the source of all joy in this world. So prayer comes out of suffering, and that is the place of joy. So pray your sorrows. Second, place your sorrows. Remember the story. Remember the master's pattern. This is the act of contextualizing your hurt, setting them within the larger story. Because of the shape of Jesus's victory, we can have victory through what looks like our losses. See, our sorrows aren't the last word. Our sorrows are the second to last word. Glory is the last word. And we need to see the world with a posture of redemptive suffering, whatever darkness enshrouds you today. Whatever anxiety racks you, whatever disruption is shaking your family, it does not get the last word. Whatever diagnosis threatens your peace, it does not get the last word. Thirdly, plant, don't waste your sorrows. Plant them, pay them forward. Those sorrows that become joy, they can become joy in a whole new way as you plant them into the soil of someone else's suffering and you can minister to them because you know what they're going through. You who have lost a spouse can, in compassion and Christ-like love, come alongside somebody who's losing theirs or lost theirs. The victim of childhood abuse who has come to know Jesus can now parlay that trauma into the, the truth of who Jesus is and how he tends to the wounded. You can speak into their lives. And the once addict you can walk alongside those who are in the moment shaking because they need their hit and you know they need Jesus and you can hold them. Don't waste your sufferings. Plant them. Pay them forward. And so I, I'm gonna close with this. What sorrows has the Lord redeemed in your life? What sorrows has the Lord redeemed and how are those translated into loving care for others? What Fridays and Saturdays that have been so dark have been transformed into bright Sundays that you can pass forward? What nightmares have you woken from to bright new mornings that you can share with other people? And I imagine, I imagine that there's some suffering and some sorrow in this room right now that is not being seen in a cross-shaped way. And you have been looking at the joy that comes after the sorrow rather than seeking the Lord and the joy that comes through it. And when you make that mind and heart shift, your experience can radically change. So, friends, what if we stop trying to hurry our way through suffering? 
but found in the midst a road to holiness. Our God is so good. He could take a Roman cross and bring about resurrection life, so surely he can use your sorrow to bring about an unimaginable joy. Father, you're good. You're good. Suffering and sorrow are not outside your jurisdiction. They are tools within your tool belt, so you can use them in ways that bring life. So please do. Uh, please do so in the, in the lives of my friends. And Father, we thank you that we can come to this table now, this table of grace. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.